Thank you, choir and orchestra and Darla for that great reminder. We're in the book of Mark. We are in chapter 14. Some of this will be on the screen in case you don't have scripture with you. I am going to ask you this morning to think, think this thing through. Let's talk about some pretty heavy-duty theology today. Theology means the knowledge of God. As we open this uh, passage today, it is midnight. It's now early Friday morning, little past midnight. Jesus is going to be nailed to the cross over across town in just a few hours. He's been arrested by that crowd of people led by Judas in the Garden of Gethsemane. The entourage of soldiers has now made its way south down through the Kidron Valley, down to the Pool of Siloam. They have marched Jesus up those old stone embedded steps that lead to the summit of the Mount of Zion. They're going to a palatial building, the palace of Caiaphas, the high priest. The priest Caiaphas has been there for a while. His family has been the head of the religious system for many years. First of all, by Annas, his father-in-law, and then by Annas' sons, four of those boys who did not do particularly well, and then his son-in-law, Caiaphas. And Jesus is now going to stand before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, the ruling group of 70 to 71 leaders of Israel. And his illegitimate trial is about to begin. But our attention is drawn away from Jesus for just a moment. There's a little commotion at the entryway where a woman is hollering something at a man who's just made entrance. And we pick up this story in Mark chapter 14, beginning with verse 66. As Peter was beneath in the palace, He's making his way up from the valley. There came one of the maids, the maids of the high priest, the maids of the high priest, young girl. She saw Peter warming himself at the fire because it's chilly there on those early April nights. She looked on him and said, well, I know you. You are with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied, saying, I know not. I don't even understand what you're saying. He went out to the porch and the rooster crowed. Now, this whole scenario takes about two hours. So later on, another maid saw him. And she began to say to those who stood by, he's one of them. He's one of them. Uh, surely you're one of them. You're a Galilean, and your speech makes that very clear. You're with him too. He began to curse and to swear. They that stood by said to Peter, you're one of them. He began to curse and swear, saying, I don't know this man at all. 
And the second time the rooster crowed and Peter called to mind the word that Jesus had just said to him a couple of hours earlier, that before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter thought about it and he began to cry. When the, Jesus and the disciples left the upper room, the Last Supper, they were on their way over to the foot of the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus began to break the sad news to his men. It's going to be a rough time. I'm, I'm going to be leaving you. I'm going to die. I'm going to be crucified. And some of you, you know, Judas, he's already gone and some of you, too, are going to be offended because of your relationship with me. Peter said, oh, 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 no, 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 Jesus. I, uh, I would never be offended. I'm your guy. I'm your man. Jesus said, you, too, you're going to be offended. Oh, no, 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 never, never, never. I would lay down my life for you. And now here he is a little after midnight. He got into the court of Caiaphas' house because John, his buddy on the disciple group, knew Caiaphas' family. That's how John got in. And probably John said, let me take Pete in with me. And then Peter began to deny he even knew Jesus. That poses a difficult theological question. That's why we're here right now. So you have given Christ your life. There's no question about it. Gave my life to Jesus long time ago, 67 years ago. I am saved. I know I'm saved. Do I always feel deeply spiritual? Nope. Sometimes I feel decidedly unspiritual, especially in the morning. Does that mean I'm not saved? No, it does not. Because I'm not justified or saved by how I feel. I'm justified because of what Jesus did on the cross. That is a fact. My feeling is quite beside the point. Before I was saved, now try to picture this. Inside of me, there was kind of a throne I sat on the throne. It's my life. It's my body. Do what I want to. I am in control of my life. Then I gave my life to Christ, and another throne was set up inside me. And Jesus sits on that throne. Now, according to some theology today, when that happened and Jesus set his throne up, the old throne was just torn down and pitched. Wrong. It's still there. Part of the book of Romans deals with this continual battle. Am I saved? Yes, that's not even the issue. The issue is there is a war going on inside me all the time. And when you and I make a spiritual boo-boo, we drop the ball, we stumble, out and out sin sometimes. 
Satan comes along and says, well, you're not even saved to begin with. Well, it's not true. You need to understand this strong bit of the knowledge of God here. The other day, I was in a, I, I, I go through bookstores all the time. I'm a book nut. And I went through, I hadn't been through this section for a long time. It was the, quote, religious section, whatever that means. I saw books everywhere. How wonderful you are. You are a little God. That's strange, isn't it? And yet I'm hearing that more and more. We are little gods. Because, doesn't Genesis say, God said, now let's make, let's make everything according to its kind, and then he made man. Therefore, man is a god. What kind of idiocy is that? That is the most illogical conclusion, and yet thousands of people believe it. Boy, those books sell. Write a book called, I Am Not God. See how well it sells. <laughs> then there are books on self-esteem. Oh, man, self-esteem. You are wonderful. You are God's gift. And what the Bible says. See, this is the other book you ought to be reading. And you ought to know this better than the other ones. Because this one's right. Self-esteem. The uh, bottom of the list was achieved just about two nights ago. Uh, when I go into my study at the house at night, after I've eaten tomato soup and grilled cheese sandwiches, <laughs> and been depressed on Jeopardy, um, I get, get on YouTube and I listen to preachers from all over the world. And I heard one the other night, it happened to be a woman. She said, I'm a child of God, I'm a little God, and I can control the weather. <laughs> really? Oh yes, she said, I control the weather. Now she said, my husband and I fly a lot, and if we see clouds coming up, we just tell them to go and they go. She said now, and this was the kicker line to me, she said now, we only fly in good weather. <laughs> and the thing that kills me is there are people saying, oh, isn't that heavy? No, it's just dumb. <laughs> and the thought hit me, if she can control the weather, She's the most cruel human being on this planet. Where was she in New Orleans with Katrina? Stop! But it saved hundreds of lives and billions in property. If she can control the weather, let her go to parts of the world where it's parched, where they haven't had rain in years, and people are dying of starvation. Let her call down rain. They will pack every arena these people go to. And people who ought to know better, who ought to know the word, what a Christian really is, will say, that's not true. 
and yet they're packed. People just don't know what the book says. So then when something comes along that upsets your spiritual apple cart for a couple days and Satan says, you're not even saved, we go into a, a fit and say, well, it's, I've never been saved in the first place. That's just not true. Let's talk about this a minute. Way back at the end of the uh, Dark Ages when the Renaissance started, which was caused by godly men like Luther and Zwingli and Calvin and so forth, John Calvin began to preach a theology to know today is known as Calvinism, and I'm not a Calvinist by any stretch of the imagination. But he began with this premise of what he called total depravity. <laughs> That's not going to sell, I'll tell you. His thesis was that despite the ability of people outwardly to have some kind of a manifestation of godliness, inside there's this battle going on, this inward distortion, he calls it, that makes all of our human actions displeasing to God. Well, that's not true, Pastor. You can't believe that. Well, it's what the Bible says. The Bible says there's none that doeth good. No, not one. The Bible says all of our good works, everything we've done is just wonderful. We've got badges of good conduct. Is to God filthy rags, and I can't even explain to you filthy rags in mixed company. Well, then I got a problem. If nothing I do is good, and it isn't, then I need help. From whence cometh my help, cried the psalmist. My help cometh from the Lord. And in this body with the two thrones, one on which I still try to sit, and a throne upon which Jesus sits, there is a constant battle going on. No, no, Pastor, I'm perfect. No, you're not. You lie. It's a battle. Who said so? Well, Paul wrote it. Paul was the greatest theologian probably of all time. The book of Romans is not the easiest book to read, but it's one of the most important. You ought to devour the book of Romans. Learn what God says about it. Here's what Paul wrote, Romans chapter 7. He says, the law, the law of God, the Ten Commandments, is good. And I'm reading from the living. I think you've got it on King James up there. My fault, guys. The trouble is not there, but the trouble is with me because I'm sold into slavery with sin as my owner. Well, who wrote that? Uh, Paul. I don't understand myself at all. I really want to do what's right, but I can't. I do what I don't want to do, what I hate. I know perfectly well that what I'm doing is wrong, and my bad conscience proves that I agree with the laws I'm breaking. You ever been there? But I can't help myself. Who wrote this? Some guy on the street? No, Paul. I can't help myself because it's sin inside me. See, when I gave my heart to Christ, my soul was saved. My body wasn't. 
And there comes about a renewing of my mind. Let the mind that is in Christ somehow be incorporated into mine. But there is still within me a sinful nature that will be there until I'm with the Lord. Do you know that? Oh, I'm perfect, Pastor. I've reached a point of perfection. No. You haven't. This answers so many questions. And Paul, in the 24th verse in the King James says, Oh, wretched man that I am! Boy, that would never sell. How about a book, I am a wretch, be like me. No, I'm a king's kid. I can control the weather. I can speak things into existence. No, you can't. God can. The only thing that amounts to a hill of beans is the amount of God in you. Let me illustrate that. I talked about this Wednesday night at quite length. I love pastoring. I've always loved pastoring. I've been a pastor now for 120 years. Long time. All I ever wanted to be was a pastor because I love teaching and preaching the Word of God. Not only the presentation of it, but I love the study. I, I spend most of my time studying. So I've got something to present to you. So I don't come to you unprepared, ever. But when I walk out that door, every time, I have a knot in my stomach, tight as a drum, because I have nothing to give you. God only blesses that which comes from himself. And if it isn't from the Lord, then I have royally wasted your time. Is that true in every aspect of life? It is that way in my relationship with Darlene. It's that relationship with our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren. It's that way in a pastor's relationship with the church board. We have a terrific board. We have a great relationship. I love these men and women. They're bright. I don't want to shake you up, but I hope this won't destroy your faith in humanity, but I am not always right. <laughs> I think I am, but I'm not. And thank God for godly men and women who say, Pastor, let's talk about this. The old human nature will rise up in anger, I'm the pastor. Who do they think they are? And that's what causes problems. I remember when God called me here, long before you ever voted, God spoke to my heart. It was three o'clock in the morning. God said, I've called you to be the under-shepherd of this flock, the under-shepherd. Jesus is the shepherd. He's the boss. And I've called you to go down there. 
And I'll never forget the last few words of Jesus talking to me. Sure, not audibly out I had a coronary, but in my spirit, God's spirit bears witness with my spirit. God said, don't you blow it. That scares me to this day. Because all I've got to offer you is what the Lord puts in me. Paul said, I live, yet it's not I. It's Christ where? In me. See, conversion, salvation is not just coming up and signing a card and re even reciting a prayer. That's okay, but that's not what conversion is. Conversion is the input of Christ's actual life inside you. So Jesus said, some of you guys are going to be offended because of me. No, no, Jesus, I would never. And there he is, ranting and raving, cursing and denying Jesus just a few days, a few hours later. But here's the good news. Here's the difference between Peter and Judas. Judas betrayed Jesus so overwhelmed with guilt and conviction he tried to hang himself and the limb broke and it dashed to pieces on the rocks below. Peter denied Jesus. Big burly Peter, little old girl. You part of that crowd. <laughs> Big sissy. Run and hide, Peter. Go hang yourself. But he didn't. Jesus, I'm sorry. I really blew it. Have you ever blown it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Thought about our good friend Nick Walenda, the great high wire guy, who was here a couple years ago, who fell this week, his, part of his team fell 25 feet to the ground. He said, this is the worst day of my life. That's the way I feel if I offend Jesus. It's, it's the worst day of my life, Jesus. But I'm not going to quit. Satan lines up to say, you are a loser. You don't have it. You've probably never even been saved. Forget about it. I rebuke you, Satan, because you are a liar. I may have stumbled and fallen, and boy, I do. I do. I suspect that when we were made, and the God and the Son and the Holy Spirit were talking, Jesus said, you know, we're going to be able to help everyone, but the Germans are the toughest. So, who's one of the first guys to get to the tomb where it's dangerous? There's Roman soldiers there. They will kill anybody trying to interfere with that tomb. Who's there? These are burly, armed Roman soldiers. Not little girl in the doorway. Who's one of the first guys there? Peter. Something's happened to him. He's had an encounter with Christ. 
A few days later, it's the day of Pentecost. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they, all the 120, were in this upper room. Suddenly, the Holy Spirit descended upon them. They were all filled with the Holy Ghost. They began to speak with tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. They were filled with this power. Jesus said, you will receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And that 120 left that cramped little crowded room. And I think they made their way clear down to the south end of the temple at the Holy Gate, all those steps there. And Peter stood up in front of all that mob of jeering people. Men! This is Peter. Men! We're not drunk. This is that which was foretold by your own prophet Joel. Declared the gospel and 3,000 people were saved. 3,000 men plus women and children and were baptized. Well, where'd they baptize them? All over those steps are called, the Jewish called the mikvah baths. When the Jews went up to the temple, they had to be ceremonial clean. They would go down into those baths. They're everywhere. 3,000 were baptized. Same guy who just a few weeks before said to a little girl, I don't even know him. It's never too late. And then comes that most poignant of moments. I'm often asked, what's your favorite place in Israel? Oh, that's easy. It's a little nondescript place about two miles south of Capernaum, right on the west bank of the Sea of Galilee. It's called Mensa Christi, Table of Our Lord. The last chapter of John, Jesus has now been resurrected and seven of the disciples went fishing, didn't catch anything. They come back toward the shore, making their boat probably just a couple hundred yards offshore, going back up to Capernaum where Peter lived. And there's Jesus making breakfast. (laughs) Can you imagine it? Jesus making breakfast. Hey guys. Not over. They come over. And while they're eating, Jesus says, Peter, come here. What's he want? What, 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 Lord? You love me, Peter? (laughs) Oh, yeah, I love you. Hey, Peter, what? You really love me. Well, you just asked me. Yeah. Yes, I love you. Hey, Peter. Do you really? Do you really love me? Oh, I love you. And Jesus told Peter that one day he too would be crucified. Peter didn't run. Ran from a little girl before, but and now years later, under the cruel edict of Nero, the emperor of Rome, he is sentenced to be crucified. But not like my Lord, I'm not worthy. And tradition says Peter was crucified upside down, outside the walls of Rome. Never to be ashamed of Christ again. So you've dropped the ball? All we like sheep have gone astray. But the fact remains, Jesus loves you and says, come on home. Come on home.
I believe he's calling somebody very strongly today. Come on. Let's pray. Lord, I'm not a little God. You, you know that. Can't control much of anything, let alone the weather. But you can. I need you, God. You're all I've got going for me. You're it. Without you, I can do nothing. Without you, I would surely fail. Without you, Jesus, I would just be drifting along like some broken raft without a sail. But with you, Jesus, oh, that's a different story. I just love you so much, Jesus. You are everything. You're everything. Thank you for loving me. I don't know why you do, but thank you. Thank you. I accept the fact that you love me and provide grace for me. I accept it with all my heart. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Let's stand, shall we? Prayer team is coming into the altar. That little chorus that I quoted in the prayer was written by Mylon Lefevre. Some of you remember Mylon when he was a big rock star. Then he gave his life to the Lord, and he wrote that. Without him, I can do nothing. Boy, I feel that way. Jesus is all I have going for me. Maybe you're having a tough time at work. Jesus understands that. Maybe your home is in turmoil. There's domestic pain there. Jesus knows that. What, whatever the burden is, maybe the doctor has given you rotten news this week. Jesus knows that. That's why we come to him and say, oh, God, help me. Without you, I've got nothing. But with you, I can do all things through Christ. Same guy who wrote, oh, wretched man that I am, wrote also to the Philippians, I can do all things through Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's the counterpart. And that's the part I cling to. If you'd like to come and pray, the altars are open as Jonathan leads us. Jesus, oh Jesus, do you know him today? Please don't turn him away, oh Jesus. that chorus now. Without him, I could do nothing. Without him, I'd surely fail. 
like a ship without a sail. Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful for your presence here today, so tangible. I believe that you're ministering to a lot of people, a lot of people at home watching by media, listening. I love you, Jesus. I thank you for everything, everything, everything. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for saving me. Thank you, Lord, for filling me with your powerful Holy Spirit. But I'm just the receptacle, the flawed receptacle. It's what's inside your very life, your saving life that makes the difference. Thank you, Jesus. Bless these dear people. Please protect them. Please bless them. Please heal them. Whatever is in their heart. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, dear ones, as you go.